You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Probably shouldn't encourage us. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And uh, I'm not sure if our listeners realize the door they just opened here. Oh, it was uh, a bad, <laughs> bad door to open, I think. But we would like to say thank you to uh, not Raquel. I don't even know. Not Raquel Welch. Raquel, right? Yes. Not Raquel Welch for her five-star review and uh, and giving us a lot of love on the buzz. We said last time how much we enjoy doing the buzz episodes where just Fran and I um, so it's nice to hear that you guys like them as well. It's, feedback uh, is always good. Sometimes yeah. you're throwing things out there and it just kind of gets lost in dead space. So mm-hmm. it's nice to hear that, you know, that kind of feedback. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. And we also want to thank Vicki for her five-star view. Um, and she left some really kind words on our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Um, that was super, super uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, that was that was very flattering. But you also gave us... Here And here's where you shouldn't encourage us. You also gave us the green light to go off topic, which is all you got to do is say it once and we're off topic. So I've been dying to have a conversation with Tom about pizza ever since we had the cheesesteak conversation with yeah. John Park. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to talk to you about that. Okay. So we, we can do it. So based on what you and your wife have been doing, mm-hmm. you started visiting top-ranked pizza places in new jersey yeah correct yep, yep. Now, was it for any particular pizza style or was no it- not there was a, a nj.com list that came out that said the best pizza in new jersey and if if you guys don't know if you're not from new jersey our governor has declared new jersey the pizza capital of the world yes um and it's pizza is a big thing in new jersey new york Connecticut, Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah it's, that, it's a big deal. And um, not saying that other parts of the country don't have good pizza. I'm not saying that at all. But it's kind of a mecca in this area, yeah. I think, for good so, pizza. And we're very close to a couple really good spots that were on that top ten list. But uh, you know, so we said, well, these are all ones with or that are within half an hour. So we went to a couple, and there's some other ones that had like cult following. So we went to those two. So we went to, I think it was like six or seven that were on that list, and then. A bunch of others that were just well known in the area. So for us, because we're in close to Trenton, New Jersey, Trenton is famous for its tomato pie. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of the top are DiLorenzo's and Papa's, yep. um, which actually Barstool Sports, they were two of the highest ranked. Yeah, yeah. I think pizza. one was like an 8 9 and one was a 9 2. Yeah. 9 3. DiLorenzo's, like yeah. I think, was and then nine, the highest three. he ever gave was a 9 4. So, so we're, we're spoiled by that. But I know one that was high on your list mm-hmm. uh, is I don't know how you, if it's Brico or Brico. I've always said Brico. I've always said Brico. It's too. a fancy place, so I figured it's it, had a fancy name. Yes, in <laughs> Westmont, New Jersey. And. Um, they do coal-fired oven pizza, mm-hmm. so we did get the tomato pie there, but it gives us a different nuance because it's coal-fired. Yeah, but yeah. I really enjoyed that. I, you're right. Yeah, that was on for my wife and I's list. That was our favorite. Okay. That was where we enjoyed the most because um, it was a little bit fancier. Like you could get some different stuff. I think they had like braised short rib on a pizza. You could get yeah. like uh, honey and and sopressata. You could get some really had, interesting combinations, and yeah. it was really really tasty. And it had that thin crust with mm. the like a tomato pie should be very thin crusted and almost burnt. Now, Cloudy, are you a pizza fan? 
Like, do you? I love pizza. Are, yes. are, do you have? <laughs> and, <laughs> do you, Do you have a favorite? Like, is there a place that you've had pizza that you're like this? This is the best pizza I've ever had. Um, I think um, you know some of these memories go back to having pizza in Italy. Um, mm. But I I love homemade pizza and just going out in the garden and throwing some fresh tomatoes and spinach on mm. it and you know enjoying it with a few mm. friends. Uh, that's usually the best. Tom's <laughs> right before the podcast. Tom's brother Steve was just throwing him <laughs> yeah, love for yeah. Tom. Apparently, makes you make a really good like cast iron. Pizza, I do right? like cast iron or just right on the grill and then same kind oh, of concept yes, where I just go yep. out in the garden, get some tomatoes, get some basil, just some other stuff and, and see what I come up with. And, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not that talented. I'm with you. <laughs> I have to rely on going, to, finding out where the good places are and yeah. going there. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's, I, I, I did find that like we talked about cheesesteaks, it's really hard to judge. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when you've had a good pie, but in your head, can you go back and and really say that Di Lorenzo's is better than Papa's or Papa's is better than Di Lorenzo's? It's hard. It's, it's hard, hard yeah. because every time you go, you might have a different mm-hmm. experience too. Like there's a place in um, oh I can't remember the town that it's in, um, but it's called Holy Tomato uh, mm-hmm. that that does. That was like, down in that same like Haddonfield Westmont area. Too, yeah, right? and it's uh, Blackwood. It's in mm-hmm. Blackwood, New Jersey. And the first time, first couple times I had it was incredible. And the last time I had it, I was like, ah, oh, something's, yeah. I don't know. And, and it's such a personal preference, yeah. too, because what was number one on that that um, NJ.com list was in, uh, I think it was Brooklyn Square Pizza in Jackson, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was top two or three for me. And my wife thought it was the worst one of <laughs> the ones that we oh, went to. Wow. So it's a personal preference as well. It is, and it but. changes. And like even with cheesesteaks, I think I've changed what my top cheesesteak was. I, I, I think I found that my favorite cheesesteak is whatever place I'm having a cheesesteak at that <laughs> <Yeah>. moment. <laughs> you know, like, oh, this is the best cheesesteak. Yeah. And I've said that 20 times. Easy. Yeah. Well, you'll have to keep us posted on the next one. I will. But for I, now, we should really, really back real, in. Okay. All right. All right. Keep it a little more... Uh, focused on the plants all right well just real quick so last last uh this is going to be all over the place this is my (laughs) mind on a normal day so uh one of our customers who you know i love when we get to visit places that we've been Mm -hmm. selling to that we haven't really seen so i went to a um a candlelit pumpkin walk at saddler's woods uh which is an old growth forest down in the haddonfield area which Mm -hmm. i was so like they have beach with 13 foot diameter wow like i've never been through an old growth forest like that and it's in the middle of so it's six miles outside of philadelphia it's Mm kind of hard to believe that it's there and hasn't been touched and they do a wonderful job preserving that so um i I think that some of those trees are like 300 years old that's incredible so uh the saddler's woods conservation association doing a wonderful job if you ever get a chance uh and you're in that area, please go visit it because you won't you won't regret it. Yeah, yeah. My wife and I are going to have to check that out after you sent a couple of the pictures over. Uh, we'll have to wait yeah. next year for the pumpkin walk, but it just looked like a cool spot to go. My only complaint about the pumpkin walk, it was 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, they do a path, and it's all lit with pumpkins that were carved for a competition, which is great, but you need to go back and, and mm-hmm. spend spend yeah. time in it. But, but moving on to today's guest um, – we have a very special guest who chimed in a little bit already. Yes. But we have a very special guest today, one of my favorite people in the industry, 
I think one of yours my, too, friend. as well. Yeah. Um, she's a landscape designer, plant advocate, public speaker, a critically acclaimed author, and probably most importantly, a listener requested guest that yes. we're finally getting on. Yes. So, I love that when that happens. So with that, please welcome Claudia West. Wow, thank you. You're too kind. <laughs> but I'm, I'm truly honored to be on your show today. And um, just want to thank you for putting together such an amazing podcast. And um, I know it takes a lot of work and passion to put together such an amazing program and fill it with fresh content and interesting speakers. So we're really grateful for this amazing resource. So I'm honored to be here today. I, I got to be honest, it's getting harder and harder. You know, when we first when we first start, I was thinking about this today. When we first started this, there was no pressure at all. Yeah. It was really loose, and it's like whatever, you know. Yeah. But now that we have a following and mm -hmm. the guests are getting, I don't want to say better, mm -hmm. but we're getting guests that maybe we maybe thought more high profile, more high profile yeah. guests. It's stressful. Like I, yeah. <laughs> like I'm starting to get stressed. So it's it's kind of <laughs> funny finding the time to do it, wanting to do a great job and put together a great show, mm -hmm. and trying to keep it loose at the same time it's, yeah. mm -hmm. it's but it's always nice when it's high profile people that we also know yes <laughs> it makes yeah. it a little bit easier to have those conversations right. <laughs> so yeah, and i get the sense that the topic itself is getting more and more relevant as well and yeah. more urgent it, um so i think the fact that you have such an amazing listening uh, audience um is, is a really good sign that mm -hmm. you know something needs to happen on a much larger scale here um, we no longer have this luxury of waiting <laughs> totally and it keeps changing mm -hmm. you know as it goes along and we're trying to go along with it but from what uh -huh. you actually just said though you know one of the things that that we ask a lot of our guests and we try to keep it on the positive side um but we always ask if it's too late for what's going on and, and what we need to do uh, to preserve nature. We always ask our guests if they feel it's too late. But the one thing that I really took away from your book, and it was really at the very beginning, um, you make a declaration that it's never too late. And for, mm -hmm. for our listeners that maybe haven't read your book yet, can you describe just what you noticed from – your childhood, um, where you grew up and, and what, what it, where it's at now and, and those changes mm -hmm. that have taken place. Cause I mm -hmm. thought that was such a great picture you painted that, mm -hmm. that nature has perseverance and, and can survive. Yeah, I think it's a, a hopeful message um, that, you know, I try to carry into the world based on my background and uh, where I come from. I was raised in Eastern Germany, so I, I think I can officially say that the country I was born in no longer exists, <laughs> which is in many ways a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I do remember uh, that time uh, through, clearly through a child's perspective. So uh, my family, parents uh, have a very different perspective. But what I do remember so clearly is a very depleted state an incredible amount of pollution and uh, devastation, uh, high-intensity agriculture and factories that let their affluent right into streams and rivers. Um, this all changed dramatically with the fall of the wall and reunification of Germany. And we have experienced a traumatic amount of healing in landscapes that we thought would be beyond repair. So that gives me the energy <laughs> and the knowledge uh, to, to really believe that 
it is never too late. It may be too late for nature as we know it, but as we all know that there, it's a gradient. There are many forms of nature. In a way, you know, an old parking lot with a few wild plants growing in it is also nature, but maybe not desirable nature. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it, so I think it's um, really encouraging to see that not everything is lost and that we can see change and um, ecological intensification and uh, you know, increase in biodiversity and ecosystem functions, even in a very small amount of time. In my short lifetime, I've already seen landscapes here that um, you know were gray and dark and incredibly polluted just a few decades ago. So that that's a hopeful message and foundation um, for a landscape designer to practice on. Oh, totally. You know, and it's, it's so cyclical. Mm-hmm both ways too uh, you know it's my fiance grew up in communist poland mm-hmm. and she grew up on a farm and it was very rural and now she sees mm-hmm. that area isn't very rural anymore <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and it's she's she's seeing it kind of go the other way and she's like oh i remember the forest and i remember this and it's it's mm-hmm. changing you know but it all it all seems very cyclical uh you know, and you realize once it's gone what what you're missing. Um, but mm-hmm. you, you did mention natives, and and one of the things that we bring up a lot is what is native. We have an internal st- struggle here, and a lot of our customers do. Like, what is native? Uh, what period are we restoring to? Uh, and those lines are really muddied. It's it's hard to tell. In your opinion, is there a new native? Is are, are natives as we know them different now? Is there is is it a new phase for us? I think there have always been different definitions of what native is. Um, I have a, a more European perspective on that, and. Um, For most European uh, planting designers, it has always been less about where a plant comes from uh, for certain historic reasons as well, and more about what does it actually do. And I'm really sometimes... I'm sad when I hear conversations uh, get stuck in this never-ending circle of trying to identify you know, how far back do we go or how many miles away from our project site should we you know, draw a line and say outside of this line it is no longer native or appropriate to plant it because I honestly think that we can't make these decisions, that all these lines we draw are rather arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So I think a way forward here and out of this uh, never-ending circle <laughs> yeah. might be to ask instead, what does it do? And to get better at understanding what functions species have, how they interact with their ecosystems, what they bring to a certain design challenge, um, how they behave with each other and everybody else in that ecosystem. I think once we start relaxing you know, this <laughs> discussion and focus on what really matters, um, it will help us create better planting designs because not every plant that um, might be, you know, native to your immediate area has super high ecological function. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about some species like ferns, for example, that will never see a pollinator on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So 
it's just a much more nuanced um, conversation. And what I find so encouraging is that, at least in my perspective, it feels like um, more and more professionals um, are shifting their attention to learning more about the functional aspects of plants um, and are trying to make more educated decisions about including these plants into you know, their, their designs based on what they bring to the table and not based on exactly where specifically they come from. And that's a, a great point you just yep. made. And I, yep. I was given, um, we had a socially distanced tour for a local community college this morning. And um, and we kind of brought something similar to that topic up, how there's so many functions that plants have beyond the aesthetic. And um, I guess mm-hmm. I was I was kind of complaining about landscape architects. <laughs> what was really happening? I was saying how, because they were asking about survival rates in projects. And I guess I said, we find architects who really pay attention to the conditions the plants are going in and the function they want it to perform have better success than the ones who say, I want something that's pink here. And yeah. just kind of go for the aesthetic of what it's supposed to look like versus the functions it's supposed to perform. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think you can easily have two sides that are just arguing what's best. And it doesn't work at all unless there's some kind of middle ground mm-hmm. that's that's found. Mm-hmm. So when when I started my career thirty plus years ago, I started on the ornamental side of the industry, and then I switched to the ecological side about thirteen years ago. And from a design standpoint, I kind of felt like at that time there was nothing in common between those two sides. It was just two sides, mm-hmm. and. I kind of feel, Cloudy, that your methodology bridges the gap in between those two sides, and, and you've, you've found a middle ground, which makes perfect sense. And I thought maybe you could talk about that a little bit and, and kind of what led you to that revelation mm-hmm. of of marrying those two sides together. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really deep question, and um, I think I'm going to try to answer this in a <laughs> intelligent <laughs> way. But um, I think what what I find so frustrating is when um, so much energy gets uh, you know spent on discussions which are often very heated, emotional, and often based on anecdotal um, evidence. Mm-hmm. When you know, right now our world is falling apart. It certainly feels that way. And what we need more than anything is action. <laughs> And a united front. So I think that um, to really work at the scale that our planet needs right now, horticulture, ecological horticulture, land management, restoration, conservation, all of these different um, uh, uh, subgroups within what we sometimes call our industry or our profession, um, I think it's important that we work together more than ever before. I've never really seen you know, horticulture and ecological uh, planting design as being two separate things. I think that traditional horticulture has to become more ecological. I think that native planting design has to learn from horticulture and maybe there's room for aesthetic improvements and adding more emotional content to planting. And quite frankly, um, restoration, conservation, all of these different um, professions, can no longer ignore people. <laughs> people mm-hmm. are a part of the solution as true wild places hardly exist anymore on the planet. Yeah. So I think that um, maybe the future, the solution is to be more inclusive and not only teach our profession, but also practice this art of working with plants and taking care of the planet in a more holistic way. 
where we can all learn from one another and speak a clear voice together to reach the folks who need to hear us, <laughs> quite frankly. You know, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that we've noticed from the podcast with many of our guests. They all maybe are working in different areas, but the common goal is really all the same. Mm -hmm. Everyone's trying to mm -hmm. accomplish the same thing, but you have all these mm -hmm. groups working separately that really could do a lot more mm -hmm. work if they, they join together. And that's we we're we're actually been really happy that some of our guests have asked to talk to other guests and some mm -hmm. of our customers have asked mm -hmm. to talk to, to guests to see if they can collaborate to do things. Yeah. But I think that's one thing when you're all in the ecological restoration side of the industry, but you need to work both sides need to work mm -hmm. together somehow. Mm -hmm. And I, I kinda never thought there was a way that that would happen. I thought like they were almost enemies, but mm -hmm. the the mm -hmm. way you approach it and I, and it's your book and also your partner, it's Tim, is it Rainer? It's Rainer, yes. Rainer, mm -hmm. okay. You know, so the the two of you found just a way to describe mm -hmm. it that makes sense. And it, it's traditionally something different than what we talk about here on on the podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're typically staying with the restoration side, but it's better if you have people that mm -hmm. are are incorporating the message than ignoring the message. Yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary that we break down these inherited barriers and learn more about what we all have in common. We all care about the future of our children and we all love walking through a forest that surprises us with lush and thriving life or sway prairie, right? With sparkling with colors. So I, I think we can no longer afford um, working in these different segments. And um, I think that, um, you know, in our profession with every project or every customer Customer, if you're on the nursery side, um, we can read. Um, we should really try to, um, yeah, preach the outside of the choir and um, teach more about the, the deeper motivations and techniques that are uh, unique to to our part of what we do, um, just to increase awareness of all these other tools that um, we have available but might not see because we think that they live in a different part of their profession. Yeah. So I think that's really so important that we reach more people outside of our little native plant bubble <laughs> <laughs> in, in a, at a scale where um, it's, it's absolutely necessary and needed. Yeah. You know, if you get the right person to, to have that discussion too, I, I find you a very – I've gotten to – see you speak on numerous occasions and and you're a very inspirational speaker you you leave one of your oh, no no problem it's, mm. it's very true but you leave your session at very uplifting thinking yeah you know yes mm -hmm. you know this 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 will work we can do these things and there's a few people mm -hmm. that we've had the the prairie preacher there's there's mm -hmm. people like that that just when you hear them talk they're spreading mm -hmm. a much wider message mm -hmm. um, right but one of the things you did touch on was emotion um and mm -hmm. one of the things that I that stuck out for me in your book was introducing the principle that native plant design is as much emotional as it is functional. And sometimes when you're dealing with it every day, it's easy to look at it as a mm -hmm. thing of function. Um, but that connection is more than just a transfers of transference of energy because we're very emotional when when you see a beautiful prairie or, mm -hmm. or woods. How is it for you as a designer uh, mm -hmm. or architect to? to strike that emotional balance between function and emotion. 
I think that um, this emotional content or evocative quality that planting can create is key in reconnecting us with with wild things, with the green things out there, with our home, where we all come from, you know, as people. Um, and uh, I'm sometimes really frustrated when I see malt choking out a little bit of life and emotion <laughs> that um, planting is trying to to keep, and um, you know, folks are continuing down this downward spiral just because um, it's in some kind of specification or this is what you've always been doing. I think that as people who are losing nature and inspiring natural places at an alarming rate, we need the planted areas around our houses and our parks along our city streets to bring some of this back for our own physical and psychological health. I think as people, we shouldn't demand any less than beautiful emotional planting. We should not accept <laughs> anything yeah. that um, is not lush and thriving because we now have all of these tools available to create and maintain planting like this. Um, the, the science of planting design has made huge advances just in the last few decades. And there is no longer an excuse why all these plantings that surround our parking lots, our grocery stores, our libraries, you name it, couldn't do better. I think there's a huge opportunity here to bring more beauty into all of our lives, not just um, privileged neighborhoods uh, in areas where the luxury of gardening can be afforded, but also in other parts of cities where communities desperately need um, yeah, all the benefits that um, plants and beautiful plant planting bring to the table. Yeah, you know, when you, when you see it done right, it definitely catches your eye. And, and, mm -hmm. and I'll be honest, from, from my standpoint, you, you know, you, you have people that when they approach it, you know, when you see a parking lot or, or a business complex that isn't done right, you know, you understand some people view it as a job and mm -hmm. um, you get bogged down in your job sometime. Even mm -hmm. for as much as we love nature mm -hmm. and plants, it's still you, – you know, you can be in it because you love it, but it's still a job and sometimes that can still – bog you down mm -hmm. now i know mm -hmm. i'm not one to complain <laughs> but Tom, you, you've heard me complain it's easy to get bogged oh, down yeah. because it's yep. it's you yeah. know you're dealing with with maybe people that have different philosophies or different ideologies mm -hmm. and it different it, knowledge mm -hmm. levels yeah. Is, yeah. It, it makes a difference or, or they're in you know you do have an industry sometimes where people are just in it for the money they're not mm -hmm. in it for the love of it mm -hmm. so it, it takes on different well, approaches mm -hmm. That's a really good point. And I, I think the money could actually be a reason not to do, you know, a multi-dominated uh, landscape that requires regular springs of Roundup to keep it looking, you know, under control. <laughs> there are several um, planting systems that are being developed and, and are very successful in, in Europe that address exactly that maintenance concern and have shown that um, if plantings that have incredibly dense uh, vegetation with you know all the emotional uh, you know color themes and uh, beautiful uh, color and texture aspects can actually cost a fraction of what a more traditional planting um, would cost. So I think that the wonderful thing about what we do is that we we have several tools available to us to sell what we do and what we believe is right as a solution depending on 
how our clients define the problem. Yeah, for some, it's uh, entirely maintenance uh, related. For others, it's the skill level required to manage and maintain a system like that. Or there are other motivations. So I think the beautiful thing about you know the cross-pollination that is happening between professionals in the world, you know, because of podcasts like yours and many others and you know books that are written and still have to be written, <laughs> yeah. um, that we learn from one another and find more of these tools to improve these opportunities that we all, you know, come across sometimes on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, and to, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. I apologize. That's <laughs> fine. Go ahead. Um, you know, one of the things that we always talk about is you have to continue to be curious and you have to be you have to mm-hmm. continue to learn. And it's easy to, to get stuck in the wheelhouse of what you know and what you do well. Like I think a lot of these landscape design companies do what they've always done and and they know it well and and they'll do a planting with the mulch because they want the maintenance they want to spray mm-hmm. they want that they want to say the, hey we can come yeah, back two or back. three times a year and we'll you know we'll mulch it every spring we'll you know and and edge the beds and we'll do this but i think you know we we've not even nature doesn't go on uh you know, you have to take care of it. It it, it doesn't take care of mm-hmm. itself. So there's mm-hmm. maintenance in a very good mm-hmm. ecologically sound place. It's just a different ideology. Mm-hmm. If you know, it's just getting the word out there, and that's the hardest thing. Yeah. Some people don't want to hear it. Some people just don't know it exists. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. You know, and I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. That. Um, nature or natural systems require maintenance. I think that is um, such an important message right there. Um, Learning more and more about the United States, which is a new country for me, I'm, you know, catching up. (laughs) But um, I'm learning that what I first thought of as, um, you know, I perceived as being wilderness, the American forest, all these lands, um, you know, with wild creatures in them and incredible biodiversity. It's actually an ancient cultural landscape, um, not that different from cultural landscapes that you know, I have observed in many other parts of the world, all across Europe and China, you name it. Um, and uh, humans and their actions, their, you know, land management, them culturing things in, in many different ways often actually created more biodiversity and more stable systems mm-hmm. and, um, you know, shaped um, uh, systems that with uh, the breakdown of some of these old management cultures um, is, is now, you know, shifting into a new reality. And that's where we are right now. So I, I firmly believe that um, land you know, can be better with people managing, maintaining it. And uh, my husband and I, we uh, managed a family farm up in uh, northern Baltimore County in Maryland. Um, and we see uh, that, uh, you know, actions that we now take that um, try to mimic some of the, you know, old uh, land use that used to happen here not that long ago, um, actually lead to pretty quick improvements in species diversity and ecological function. So um, I think that that is a really important layer of um, our attitude towards I, land. So, well, well said. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree yeah. 100%. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we had the pain of... Uh, really good picture of this we had dr Dwayne estes on from southeastern grasslands initiative and he just talked about mm-hmm. the importance of fire and um mm-hmm. he explained some of these uh, southern pine savannas very similar to our new jersey pine barrens where if you go through you have the pine trees yeah might have some blueberries or, or 
um, Inkberry Holly underneath uh, some oh. some Greenbrier and not much else. But just by cutting down some of the trees or having a fire come through, it increased the diversity mm-hmm. tenfold. And it was amazing some of the seeds that were in the seed bank. Um, mm-hmm. And in for his organization's uh, purposes, they're looking at grasslands versus um, these pine savannas. They were saying, we're good at mm-hmm. planting trees. We aren't good at creating all this really high quality and more diverse habitat in grasslands. But uh, but he painted a beautiful picture of how that really is. And then Sam Drogi, one of our first episodes, he kind of said yeah. the same thing. It was with editing yeah. is what he called it. And he just kind of went through and, well, yeah. I'd edit this out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it created all this. Yeah other potential for other things you know we just speaking with one of our customers we were talking with mark gallagher at princeton hydro and they're they were working on a project uh on a waterway not far from the nursery that was all completely covered in frag and they were removing the frag to kind of think fragmites just to think what they were going to do next and they were really surprised in the seed bank pickerel weed came back uh, mm-hmm. duck potato came back cattails came back uh, arrow arrow like they were like nature was telling us what should be here mm-hmm. what was here before then and it was still in the seed bank and it was just waiting to see the light of day mm-hmm. to come back mm-hmm. and that's a beautiful thing that's the that's oh, the type of yes. thing Stunning. we love yeah. hearing um, yeah yeah the land has a certain memory I, I totally agree yeah mm-hmm. one of the things we wanted to touch on that that i loved about your book is you kind of approach things as an ecosystem um and not a space it's it's function and functionality and what should these plants you know if 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 they're in the right place they're performing the right function and they're happy um and i i thought that was really novel you know just because our listeners, we get asked a lot, you know, about should we amend soil uh, for planting? Um, you know, I want to, I want to plant mm-hmm. this plant, and it likes dry conditions, but I want to put it in a wet condition. Can I amend it? And I really think that question is a gross misunderstanding of where plants belong. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel what you talk about in your book kind of really answers that question. Maybe not the way they want <laughs> want it to be answered. <laughs> You know, because I, I really feel that if you're planting the plant in the right place, it doesn't need to be amended. There's, you know, everything has a place where it's happy. And when you try to alter that, sometimes plants aren't happy. Um, what is your best advice to our listeners um, mm-hmm. for that kind of scenario? Yeah, so I, I think the, the first lesson I learned as a planting designer is that plants never lie. They will always <laughs> tell you the truth. <laughs> You can't make them do something they don't want to do. Yeah. So the sooner you understand what they need, the better. <laughs> so you have I to think, listen. Yeah. <laughs> you have to listen. Yes. And I find that some of the world's best planting designers, they, they have a, a gift for looking at plants and communities and reading them like an open book um, and uh, have a connection uh, with that and are able to interpret it interpret what um, plants are trying to tell you sometimes you know in in certain you know in a very nuanced way (laughs) so uh, i think my advice would be um to 
leave the vegetable garden, um, you know, uh, methods behind and yeah. don't assume that every plant will be happy if you, you know, add a ton of compost and make the soils perfect. Um, we all know that plants grow, you know, anywhere on the planet, really, yeah. uh, even in the toughest of conditions. Um, so we all know that plants have very different requirements, but what they really need is they need three things to line up or if you don't do that, planting will be doomed from day one. <laughs> and this goes back to um, Philip Grimes' CSR strategy, the competitive strategies. So, and, and we try to build every single one of our designs on this foundation. We try to line up those three things. So the first one is site conditions. Um, we know from Philip Grimes' strategy that um, sites can be stressful, they can be perfect with tons of good resources, or they can be subject to frequent disturbance. Most habitat types fall into one of these three, more or less. That's the first thing we need to understand. So the second thing we then need to understand is after we've identified these conditions, what plant palette is appropriate? And here we often go to you know, similar habitats in the wild to try to understand who evolved strategies to deal with these kind of conditions. And these are our plants. So now we have a site. We know what habitat type it is. We know a plant palette that will likely survive on that. But that's not enough. If you stop there, it's doomed. Mm -hmm. The third thing you need is a management strategy that lines up with your first two points. If your management changes the site conditions, it's doomed because the plants will change. <laughs> if your management, you know, adjusts new plants or brings new species into the mix, they won't match your site conditions. It's doomed. So really all three things, your site conditions, your plant palette, and how you manage it need to line up to make a more or less <laughs> stable planting that, you know, won't turn into a maintenance nightmare or fall apart the second you, you plant it. So an example would be, for example, if you know you are planting a green roof system, mm -hmm. you know, you can very clearly see it's probably going to be a pretty stressful site, um, you know, with dry conditions, probably shallow soil media, high UV intensity, probably high pH, you name it, stressful. Okay, we got our habitat. <laughs> yeah. Now we go and find plants for that. We we'll probably look for, you know, maybe dry grassland, prairie species, succulents, you name it. That's the second one. But the third piece we need for this green roof to be successful is a management strategy that will match that. That means if that management strategy turns on irrigation water, we're changing the site conditions, it's doomed because these plants mm. will die, right? So yeah. if that doesn't line up, that's the third piece, then we're not going anywhere. <laughs> so in all of our plantings, we try to approach it this way. It's like the holy trinity of planting design. <laughs> <laughs> and that elevates management, you know, to where it needs to be. It needs to be part of the thought process from, you know, the first second you're even putting, you know, pencil to paper. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, what what I really – what struck me about your response, even though we're talking about functionality, that was a very emotional response. Mm -hmm. And it's <laughs> when, when, when you – which I love, and, you know, and, and that's one mm -hmm. of the things I love about hearing you speak. It's, it's hard not to be romantic about these types of conditions, even though we're talking about functionality. We're still talking about a thing of beauty that we have a, mm -hmm. a emotional mm -hmm. connect with, and I think it's just – are you ready to hear that? <laughs> and that was kind of my reaction was that's going to be 
for a lot of people, it's almost like a hard pill to swallow because they get so attached to a plant mm -hmm. because of its aesthetic. And they, um, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, but they really want a certain plant because they love the flowers, they love the leaves, they love something about it, but they don't have uh -huh. the site condition or they don't have yeah. the management plan for it. And then they get really upset when it fails almost to the mm -hmm. point where they just keep trying and trying and trying because <laughs> they just want it. I've even done this with, with cardinal flowers. I've done this. Oh, I, I've <laughs> done it too, like, yeah. I want cardinal flowers so bad and I just keep planting it even though it hasn't worked and it, it probably would never work if I just keep trying the same thing. But um, yeah, 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 it's it's tough for a lot of, and I, I know when I consult with people a little bit on their home gardens, that's just kind mm -hmm. of the feedback I, I give them is like, if it's, you got to mm -hmm. make sure you're choosing the mm -hmm. right stuff for the conditions or you're fighting an uphill battle the whole time you know you know and it's and and so many times there's so many other factors we're trying to make something natural of an unnatural mm -hmm. condition um and there's factors that you can't control um which which means that trying to restore something to what we consider native isn't necessarily always possible because mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. not a native condition so one of the things that in your book that mm -hmm. you, you discuss is that Maybe there's there's no going back like in some places like if a city's a city it's not going to be what it was before it was mm -hmm. a city and and actually um Enrique Sala talked about that he's like New York City is about as unnatural as you can get and it's not going back yeah. <laughs> you know so it's how do you proceed from there and and where do you go and it's what's what's the new what's the new norm so one of the mm -hmm. quotes that stood out to me in the book was what we see growing together now is only one possible version. Countless other plants will work together if they just have the chance to meet in the wild or in cultivation, which I think is so true. And since you've adopted this, how how have you seen its success going forward? Are, are you are is it is it met with open arms as as you're doing this and presenting this? Well, this is really not something that you know we invented. I think yeah. that's what horticulture has done since there has mm -hmm. been horticulture, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think uh, it, it all depends on, well, the, the skill level of a you know designer or a, a gardener, um, because this um, you know combining species from different you know areas in one country or from different parts of the world requires a deeper understanding of these plants and what they how they would behave with one another. So it's very much based on the skill and experience. Um, it's, it's a little bit of experimentation on the gardener's side, but uh, I think it can work. Um, what is important to say, though, is that we're not advocating here for um, you know, bringing plants from everywhere oh, no. and combining everything with one another. I think yeah. that what we see growing together in you know wild systems, um, even in you know systems that have naturally sorted themselves out um, and are not actually planted by people, but these things are always one of the greatest inspirations for our work uh, because it gives us an opportunity to really study how these plants nestle with one another and how they share spatial or temporal niches. Um, they allow us to understand more about how we can bring 
the highest amount of functional and biological diversity into a planting by not thinking about, you know, one plant beside another, but mm. how possibly could we put one on top of the other, you know, using mm. their metabolisms and life cycles as an advantage. Uh, all with the goal to create more abundance um, in, you know, our planted areas and to increase uh, functional diversity as much. Um, so I think it, it's a wonderful thing to see um, that many more combinations and uh, yeah, uh, plant communities are possible than what we see in the wild. But we also have to be really careful when we design these things and do our homework because it, it may fail if we don't. You know, one of the things that whenever we have a discussion like this, one of the things that we always see push and pull on is mm -hmm. pollinators and wildlife and what those plants um do they encourage native pollinators and wildlife do they encourage mm -hmm. um i don't want to say invasive but um non-native i guess pollinators and wildlife which it's hard to say because there's so much non-native stuff here <laughs> it's mm -hmm. yeah. it's it's hard to you know I'm i'm even to a point where i don't know how to answer those questions you know, everyone <laughs> everyone wants to be a purist to a, to a sense, but is that even mm -hmm. feasible or possible? Do you when when you're designing and and you're taking these approaches, do you factor in pollinators and wildlife? Is that uh, you know, I guess it depends on the job or, or depends on the scenario. But is that something no, that you just, look at yeah. when you're? It is absolutely part of our DNA. Um, you know, every single project, even if it is more a traditional um, blo blocked planting for you know a commercial setting, um, we will always uh, include as many species as we can with really high uh, pollinator value or being host plants or just having that functionality. Because I, I totally believe that um, creating ecologically dead planting it just the solution we, we can we cannot do that <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think we have this incredible privilege right now to be on the design team for the new uh, pollinator and bird garden at uh, Pendit Arboretum up in State College, Pennsylvania. Right. And uh, we are part of an amazing team there, um, working both with uh, Harlan Patch and entomology department at the university, as well as um, DDA Design Studio out of uh, Colorado and um, incredible um, manager uh, of the Arboretum, Sherry Edelson. And uh, this project is really exciting because it... Um, the entire design is very much based on giving these pollinators and birds a foundation for life. And that does not only include just putting the right kind of plants in there. It also includes, you know, habitat, water, um, you know, connections to other remnants of, of native areas. All of these other pieces that um, insects and birds but life really needs beyond food. <laughs> um, and I think just from this one project, we learned so many more things that we can now fold into other projects that make them richer. And many times our clients have no idea we're doing this, <laughs> but we believe it needs to be done. And uh, we, we take this very seriously. I think that there is opportunity in um, making even a simple you know, green mulch planting around a few shrubs mm -hmm. more ecologically valuable by doing your homework and seeing what can you sneak in <laughs> what choices can you make to to make it better to squeeze every bit of function out of every square foot we, we get our hands on i think that's the level of intervention that we need right yeah. now and it's really i think our profession has to stand up to this um landscape architects and beyond um it is no longer good enough to just design 
I think it yeah. requires every one of us to help with this now and not wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. You know, mm-hmm. and it's funny. I think we probably have more information at our fingertips and we've learned more mm-hmm. probably in the last 10 years than we've learned in the previous 100 years uh, as far as a lot of these interactions go. And we're just really, I think, realizing mm-hmm. how much we don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or how much information yeah. we've lost. So uh, true. Yeah. Because – yeah. Maybe we didn't like Sam Drogi with with cataloging yeah. native bees. Mm-hmm. Like they're like we've just started. We're just learning. We don't even know what yeah. has already perished <laughs> that yeah. we have no knowledge of what they were mm-hmm. and why they're gone. You know, but at least uh, mm-hmm. there's something now. So we're we're constantly learning. It's just one of the, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where it's hard to to pinpoint what's right. You know, it's mm-hmm. I, no, I don't think any of us can really say what's right, and that's a constant battle. But as long mm-hmm. as we're all working to the same common goal, yeah, it's you, you know if you still get that same connection and that same emotional mm-hmm. response, is it wrong? Mm-hmm. I probably yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> probably right. not. And just to, to add to your point there, I think that um, there's so much we don't know. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's really hard sometimes to decide should I use this species, which is you know really good for short tongue bees, or am I benefiting you know Lepidoptera today? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, just because um, maybe this one plant attracts, you know, 10 species and the other one only five doesn't mean we have all the data yet to make that decision. So there's no way we know enough at this point to really make decisions with our designs. But <laughs> I think there's one thing we can all do to still do a really good job at ecologically intensifying planting. And that is to make planting more abundant, to add more plants. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. think nurseries love hearing that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah. more of everything to it and fill these voids that, that are so it's like an epidemic in horticulture right now that we're accepting gaps everywhere. But just by filling them with more plants, I think we're squeezing so much more function, and not just for, for pollinators, but think about stormwater, soil treatment, carbon sequestration, the list is really long, into even smaller spaces. I think that there is opportunity here too, that's just through layered planting and being smart about how we nestle plants with one another, um, you know, in addition to thinking about pollinators and all that, yeah, I- can improve every single, you know, space that we create. And plants will figure it out. You know, their job is to to survive. <laughs> you know, you if you if you squeeze them in, they'll they'll make it work. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you look in nature, mm-hmm. there's no open spots. You know, by design. Very few. You know, it's mm-hmm. or very few. It's they. You know, they'll they'll find a way to survive, and that's that's a great point, mm-hmm. actually. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think the important thing is are you, are we asking the right questions, which I think we are, mm-hmm. and you know, and what what we see in as in any industry, like there's still nurseries that grow invasives, exotic mm-hmm. invasives, because they can sell them and they make money mm-hmm. and it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't connect with them why they shouldn't do it because mm-hmm. they've been doing it for so long. So it's you know, it's 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 changing that mindset just to at least ask that question and think about those things. Mm-hmm. And I think if yeah. you are is there really a right or wrong? Mm-hmm. I I guess what yeah. I'm getting. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just have to show it um, and show what an alternative could look like and demonstrate why there is a market surrounding this alternative and, you know, what it takes to, 
you know, to be in that market <laughs> to to get certain people's attention. So, yeah. yeah, I think if you, if you educate mm-hmm. the ge- general public and they know mm-hmm. not to ask for those plants and ask for something else, yeah. it's an opportunity for these. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be doing this much business doing this, but there's a big mm-hmm. opportunity out there if if you open your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, to I it. agree. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I did want to surprises me. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, yeah. you go. You go. I'm <laughs> changing the topics. Yeah. <laughs> it's it surprises me how many um, of our clients um, are now asking for something different, something that differs from what they learned from their parents, how they thought, you know, residential landscapes look, and um, you know they've had moments that opened their eyes. Uh, it might be watching a certain you know show on TV or listening to your podcast or. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just a hike that was like an epiphany and something clicked. And um, I find it encouraging to see clients not only, I mean, they're across the board in, in many different um, you know, communities having these moments of uh, waking up and demanding more than your decoration. And I find that really encouraging and hopeful for our future. I do too. And I think with the pandemic, people, and, and we've mentioned this plenty over the last year, have found a mm-hmm. new way to connect with nature because, mm-hmm. you know, you were limited with what you could do. You couldn't go to dinner. You couldn't go to a movie or walk through a mall. You, you know, you wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. You connected with nature. And I think this was new for a lot of people yeah. uh, or, or life-changing for me. I mean, it really yeah. brought back a different passion for me, I think, for work, you know, just mm-hmm. stepping away from it and enjoying it and not doing it mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for, a, yeah. you know, for, for a job. Yeah, it's meaningful. Yes. Yeah, I think that's uh, really inspiring. And that gives us a lot of energy as we tackle sometimes difficult or, you know, com- clients or complex projects. Um, so every now and then it helps circle back to why we are doing this and lift ourselves up. And that gives new energy to plow forward. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I am I am going to change the topic a little bit. Okay. Go um, because we have such a great designer or landscape designer on here right now i want to make sure we ask some design questions for our listeners at home who might be working on their home garden or planning out a new garden in their in their home you've touched on some key things i know you really like with the using plants instead of mulch stacking plants um integrating that vertical what are those like the big takeaways that you want that at home gardener to change how they garden, like starting out with mm-hmm. not using mulch and using plants. What are some of the other mm-hmm. keys that, that you really like to see with home gardeners? Um, I think maybe um, one of the most important ones is to not hold back on plants, indulge, have more of what you love. Not just one, go shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Buy them smaller so you can afford it, but fill the spaces with the things that bring you joy, either the plants directly or the creatures that um, these plants bring into your garden that then in return bring you joy every single day. Um, Make the paradise, invite life and um, be daring. Just trust your instinct. Uh, Many of us still feel what is right. We evolved in a natural environment. And a few hundred years of living in cities or just a few decades of multiculture have not wiped that out. I think we instinctively still know what is beautiful. Think about the hike you did in spring when all the Virginia bluebells were covering this entire valley and how, how that made you feel. Why shouldn't yeah. we have any less in our gardens? <laughs> yeah, you know, and there, it, it, 
there's really no right or wrong. Like you can be creative mm -hmm. with this. Uh, there's yeah. principles you want to follow, but you can, mm -hmm. you, you know, the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's great advice. Yeah. That's great advice. I, I agree. And not to be afraid, right? Um, yeah. Just really go for it. Yeah. You, you can't <laughs> mess up. <laughs> the only mistake you could make is not having plants in your garden and <laughs> letting some mulch industry tell you that this is the way you should be doing things because that is not the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So I I have a question mm -hmm. for you, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask people because you are so good at this and so passionate about this. Did you always know that this is where your path would lead? Like what was your your journey to um, yeah. to get here? That's a really good question. I think um, so after the war fell in Germany, my family started um, a plant nursery and a small design build firm. So I learned uh, the craft of propagating plants and working with them as well as managing planting long term from a super early age on. And, you know, I loved it. But, you know, as a rebellious teenager, I think I left that world for a little bit to see what else is out there. Um, but then I circled back to it um, because, quite honestly, um, the older I got, the more I realized how how much I love nature and how much it needs our help. So I learned, um, uh, I studied with uh, Wolfgang Ömer, Ömer van Sweden, um, a very, um, very inspirational uh, planting designer, landscape architect, um, who brought in many ways, um, you know, working with perennials to the United States and um, was one of the first people in this country here who used uh, perennials in huge massings in, in very exuberant, daring uh, combinations, you know, to not just covering a few feet, but square miles with planting. Yeah. And uh, it inspired me so much what these types of plantings gave people back, <laughs> how they not only gave joy, but also, you know, actually created lower maintenance in some, uh, some areas and brought life back. So that was really one of the moments when I realized I would like to do that too. But I don't want to do this just from a horticultural perspective to please people. I think the times have changed. We live in a different universe now. Yeah. I think that every single opportunity we have with planting can do way more than that. It's an, it's an opportunity to bring plants back, not on, just into the gardens, but we all know that plants escape gardens. And these spontaneous plants at some point become part of nearby ecosystems. So I see every planting, not only as something that pleases people and pollinators and all that, but also as an opportunity to enrich the ecosystems that surround a particular project site. And with that, our profession has a lot more power and um, it's much more important than we sometimes, you know, are led to believe. Yeah. I, so I think that's really gratifying. <laughs> I love those stories. I love that aha moment. Tom, I don't even know if mm -hmm. you know this, but before I came to Pinelands, I contemplated making a career change. So I was in a position, I was the sales manager at Princeton Nurseries and, and, they had decided to close the doors. So at that point, mm -hmm. I knew I had to to find a new job, but was like, now I can make a change. I never, you know, it, I never felt at that point it was my calling. Coming to Pinelands Nursery was my aha moment mm -hmm. where I'm like, this is what I want to do. This is what I was missing. Being on this side of the industry, it gave me purpose and meaning that I didn't kind of feel I had on the other end of the mm -hmm. industry. So that was like my aha moment where I was like, this is mm -hmm. like it. So I love hearing like 
mm-hmm. like wh- how that hit you. That was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So and it's it's still evolving. <laughs> yes, yes. To- oh, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. To be continued, yeah. <laughs> so I know we we were trying to keep it to a certain time limit, and we're we're at about that. So I, we should probably try to wrap it mm-hmm. up a little bit. So we have just like a couple quick questions, and then final thoughts. We're curious if there's another book book in the works. Well, um, Thomas and I are starting the process. Um, you know, just through the last few years of uh, you know spending more time practicing what we preach, and yeah. um, after we started Phyto Studio, now really getting these projects under our belt, and um, you're know, using this this approach, this method, um, and an incredible diversity of uh, project types. Um, you know, I, f- I feel that there's something is evolving. We, okay. we have something to say again, and um, we're at the very early stages of um, understanding how to articulate that and how to give this 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 knowledge to people. Um, so yes, mm-hmm. awesome. Well, we're excited about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so our our last question, always, and it's always the most important question, is what is your favorite native plant? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I couldn't answer this. Uh, it changes by the day and sometimes by the hour. Um, <laughs> well, what what would it be right now? So uh, right now, I think um, I, I have this love affair with violets. Um, okay. <laughs> um, this is a time of year when you really see them shine, when you know other perennials are starting to go dormant and they have wintergreen foliage and you know the fact just spread their seed is, is really so obvious and in many places they are some of the last remaining ground covers now that will carry um, a planting through the winter until you know fresh life emerges in the spring mm-hmm. i love um, the resilience of them and the fact that they don't need human life support to be a part of planting a very you know long-lived one um, and the fact that they can um, even if you just introduce a few in your new planting find open ground on their own and not require enormous resources to fill gaps um, they're really beautiful and uh, apparently lepidoptera really depend on them quite a bit according to doug Tellamy's list um so yeah i think it's violets right now <laughs> yeah oh, that's a great choice and and speaking of <laughs> dr Tellamy, do you want to mm-hmm. can we tom do you want to say well i yeah. guess we have to so. yeah yeah <laughs> but um so he's actually going to be our next guest. We've been we've been kicking around the idea of having him on for a while, and he actually, in coordinating when he was going to come on, he told us to to tell you hello as well. So Aww. he wanted to say hi. So nice. um, yeah, so he's coming to be on next week. Yeah, yeah. So that's we're we're excited about mm-hmm. that. But yeah. that's that's a great choice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love hearing that. Do you have you know growing up in Europe and then moving to uh, North America and having traveled? Do you have a favorite like wild space that like it could be a forest, a park, a prairie? Is there one place that mm. that you've visited that just really had an emotional connect with you that you kind of might say, you know, this is one of my favorite places? I think the answer might surprise you. Okay. Um, what I find most exciting and inspiring Actually, the wild spaces I see in cities like Baltimore, where vacant lots have come down and I see vegetation reclaiming, you know, sometimes contaminated bare ground, rubble, right? Yeah. For me, that, what I learned from just, you know, walking on my hands and knees, crawling through <laughs> these spaces and understanding how this process happens can be... <laughs> 
not only hopeful, but it teaches me so much. Um, in addition to you know, the many, many I do, you know, sometimes uh, monthly, um, other natural areas. But um, yeah, so I think you know, accepting wild not only as you know a nature area or a park somewhere, but the wild that is right under our noses. That is super fascinating. You know, it's funny because <laughs> Doctor Sala, when he was on, talked about Chernobyl. And mm-hmm. how since it's uninhabited, nature is kind of reclaiming it mm-hmm. and taking over and how interesting that is. Just, you know, when, you know, we'll, we'll kind of end it the same way we started it. Like, and you're thinking, have we done too much damage? Is it too late? That's that's a prime example mm-hmm. of that it's not, you know, nature will find mm-hmm. a way. It's coming back on its own. So absolutely. That's, yeah, that's a great way. So we, we always that's end up the podcast with a final thought. So this is where we give you the floor. Um anything if you want to summarize if you want to add anything promote anything talk about anything this is your your spotlight you can you can say whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) so i think um to sum it up i i would love to address your listeners directly and um just say how how important it is that we all understand that the world we live in is the world we make um that every opportunity we have to you know, use plants to make it better should not be wasted. Um, there's really a sense of urgency here. And um, I truly believe that every single plant counts and um, every single space is connected to another space <laughs> that will benefit uh, from you simply adding a beneficial plant to it. And um, you're taking ownership of this problem. I really think that the way to a better future will start with the actions of every one of us, um, no matter where we are in the world or which you know uh, part of the profession we live in, work in. Um, so I wish you all the energy and the passion to be part of this army who is really trying to make a change right now. So with that, I just want to thank you for having me. And um, once again, thank you for all your passion and the hard and thoughtful work that goes into the podcast. And I can't wait to listen to many exciting future episodes here soon. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. That's that's very kind of you. Thank you. Tom, do you want to go or would you like yeah, me I'll, to go? Mine's fairly quick. but I So I've gotten to see Cloudy speak numerous times yeah. now. Um, and... You, so, Claudia, you were actually one of the people that really made me think of garden design, not looking at from that landscape architect overhead view with the graph paper and the circles and and more kind of <laughs> just tilt it to how you'd actually be looking at it and just thinking of the verticals. You need that ground cover. You need that next layer. And then you just have a couple things that are coming out um, through the canopy of that. And I never really thought about designing a garden that way until – you'd really made that flip <laughs> that 90 degree flip in my mind but uh and then one of the other uh, times i saw you i i got this from my dad but we're like super cheap when we go to conferences and we always drive and leave super early in the morning before we um before we go and we don't we never get hotels yeah like anywhere we go we never get you, hotels. you, you commute it's, it's, it's well a, we'd rather leave it like yeah. two in the morning than, yes. than stay overnight but there was one time I went I don't remember what conference is, but I did that and I left it super early in the morning and I got there and um was really excited to hear your talk and your voice is just so soothing that it actually put me to sleep. Oh, <laughs> so I'm hoping that we get some double listens here. Oh, yeah, yeah. People listen the first time for the uh for the content and then maybe when they listen uh, they can put it on later tonight and it'll just kind of soothe them off soothe to them sleep off. tonight. So, soothe, yeah. soothe nice, well, thank you, nice Tom. <laughs> All right. So my final thought uh-huh. is when when it comes to ecological thinking, 
or, or native plants, don't draw a line in the sand um, with what your perspective is. Because you know what? Plants don't do that. Plants will intermingle and they'll fill the open spaces. Do the same way with your thinking. No one particular train of thought is correct. We all have the same goal. We, we you know, we've on the podcast had guests that came from so many different angles, but everyone's goal was the same and working together all those things we can all achieve what it is we're hoping to achieve so don't don't be so strict with your thoughts that you're discounting other things when everything has a benefit that we're trying to we're, we're all trying to get that same thing so be open-minded don't draw a line in the sand and just kind of hear all the sides and, and kind of it, it it can all work together you know and that's what we're hoping yeah. that's the only way this is going to work is if it all works mm-hmm. together so. All right. So How's that too deep. For oh, that was good. Well that was a good deep one. <laughs> well, that wraps it up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to Cloudy West. Make sure you purchase her book, which we never said the name of. We did not. Which is Planting in a Post Wild World. Um, <laughs> that's written by by herself and then uh, her partner Thomas Rainier, who they're partners at Fido Studio. Uh, pick it up at a local bookstore. I think I saw it on Amazon as well. There's a bunch of places you can get it, but it. it Fran got to read it. I've only read a portion of it, but I've heard so many great things about it. Um, so thank you guys for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. We, as always, we'd love to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. We do have the question and answer line. Uh, and people have started to call, so please make sure you call us at 215-346-6189. Ask us a question. Leave us a comment. If we pick your question or comment, we'll play it on a future uh, episode of The Buzz. Uh, I think we're kind of limiting it to The Buzz yes, to keep, yeah. keep things running smooth. And uh, let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. You guys have been great. We have a ton of new members, so keep the conversation going over there. You can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out at, on Apple Podcasts. That's where we get the five-star reviews that we like to shout out now when yeah. they, they come in. A um, lot of people not saying it yet, but we picked in the last like two or three weeks, we've gotten like seven new five-star reviews, yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. And write something, too. We like it when people write stuff. Yeah. So it's nice to – it's a little confidence boost. So um, you can also listen to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcast. We're on Pandora now. I think. We are on Pandora so. now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast and stay tuned. This is a great episode. Stay tuned for next week. This is a guest that we were hoping to have on since the beginning. We just wanted to get enough street cred <laughs> to have him on. So. Yeah. But with that, thanks, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. We will see you again next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.